was. We hear he is the Wizard of Wiz, if ever a Wiz there was. If ever, oh ever a Wiz there was, the Wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. We're off to see the Wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. This is The Wizards of Money, your money and financial management series. But with a twist. My name is Smithy and I'm a wizard watcher in the land of Oz. This is part 18 of the Wizards of Money series and it is entitled Where Wall Street Crosses Auburn Avenue. Do I hear any other bids? Do I hear any other bids? Going once, twice, three times, sold to the lender for 102880 this goes to the sort of the idea of the American dream. It's a shame that so that a CEO such as this uh, guy named Lawrence Koss, who was the CEO of Green Tree Mortgage, uh, could make a hundred million dollars a year when he was the CEO of that company, which is now owned by Conseco, which is now in bankruptcy. That that this man could make a hundred million dollars a year. Uh, and that so he could do that, all these elderly homeowners had to face foreclosure and eviction on their homes. And um, this issue goes to, to the American dream of home ownership. You know, so much goes on behind closed doors. People in America don't know what's happening, that people are being foreclosed on and evicted and, and mass. I tell you, when, when folks in America will know about it, if the economy takes a further downturn, you're going to see massive, massive foreclosures of these subprime mortgages. Do I hear any other bids? Do I hear any other bids? Going once, twice, three times sold to the lender for 102880.26. In this, the 18th edition of the Wizards of Money, we're going to take a look at what's driving today's record rate of home foreclosures, from subprime lending to abuses of the home ownership programs initiated during the Great Depression. Home foreclosure is the process whereby a mortgage lender takes over a property when a borrower is late on loan payments. To study today's alarming trends, we'll need to follow the capital being pumped into various lending abuses all the way back through the predatory pipeline and ending at the major Wall Street players. We'll examine the roles played by major financial institutions and those unregulated and mysterious things known as hedge funds and special purpose vehicles. We start our journey through the predatory pipeline in the city of Atlanta, one of the major accumulation points for predatory capital, primarily in low-income and minority neighbourhoods. We'll go back to a time when capital flows in this area worked very differently. Then we'll come back to the present to follow the modern capital flows back to their source. To understand the driving forces behind today's record foreclosure rates nationwide, we'll talk with Charles Gardner, the director for the HUD Home Ownership Centre for the Southeastern United States, and we'll also talk to Bill Brennan, the director of Atlanta Legal Aid's Home Defence Program. But first, let's start with the walk around downtown Atlanta. In December of 2002, there was much celebration in Atlanta over the fact that Georgia has now produced two Nobel Peace Prize winners, Martin Luther King Jr. and, most recently, former President Jimmy Carter. 
In fact, the King Centre and the Carter Centre, dedicated to both the memory and missions of these two Peace Prize winners, lie only about one mile apart, and there is a walking path connecting the two. This walk, starting on Auburn Avenue, the birthplace of King and the home to the King Centre, has been described as that from civil rights to human rights in the local Atlanta news, and it follows a road called Freedom Parkway. Hmm, what a lovely walk, I thought to myself on a recent sunny winter's day. So I started walking along Auburn Avenue, ready for my freedom walk. However, somewhere along the way, I messed up and took a wrong turn, going south instead of north. Pretty soon, none of the streets I was walking down looked very much like a freedom parkway to me. Certainly financial freedom was not evident. Instead, foreclosure was, with some streets dotted with several homes in foreclosure. Perhaps I was walking in circles, but later on in the day I ended up on the steps of the Fulton County Courthouse in downtown Atlanta. And lining the steps throughout the day were a bunch of mumbling lawyers with piles of papers that they were reading, one after the other, just like this. Notice the sale under power contained in the security deed state of Georgia County of Fulton. Pursuant to the power sale contained in the certain security deed executed by Ralph Short. Here and after referred to as grand total, including including the plural, the Equity One Inc. of Delaware Corporation, according to the book 28933, page 205 of the deed record of the Court of Superior Court. Southeast corner of Lucille Avenue and Must Street, running south along the east side of Street 180. The sale will be made subject to the following items, which may affect the title, the sale property, all restrictions, covenants, easements, and rights of way appearing of record, if any, all zoning ordinances, matters which would be disposed by an accurate survey on my inspection of the property office. On behalf of the lender, and I hear any bids, on behalf of the lender, I bid $220,500. Do I hear any other bids? Going once, twice, sold to the lender for $220,500. These lawyers were auctioning off the thousands of Atlanta homes in foreclosure that hit their books in the month of December. Most of the homes were going straight back to the banks. Don't be fooled by the location of the auction though. Just because it takes place outside the courthouse, outside is definitely the operative word. There's none of this getting your day in court when it comes to foreclosure in this city. I got some foreclosure statistics from the Atlanta Foreclosure Report and did a little analysis on where most of these homes were that were being auctioned off by the collection of mumbling lawyers on the courthouse steps. Consistent with studies done on foreclosure in other cities, the data showed the highest rates of foreclosure in predominantly African-American neighbourhoods. Pondering all this, I departed the courthouse steps and headed back towards Auburn Avenue. Back along Auburn Avenue, I passed by the Modern Atlanta Life Insurance Company building and then heading east towards the King Centre, passed by many buildings in disrepair. You can just make out the words on the signs of some of the buildings and, if you know your history, you can try and imagine what was going on in and around them years ago. For Auburn Avenue was once the hub of black economic activity in Atlanta and a key source of capital for African Americans. Along this stretch of Auburn, you pass by the Apex Museum and you can watch a movie called Sweet Auburn, Street of Pride. Here's an excerpt from that movie. By 1909, blacks were the majority on Auburn Avenue. 
The change resulted from racial strife, segregation laws, and the Atlanta riot itself. In 1909, the Atlanta State Savings Bank was opened at 185 Auburn Avenue by John Oliver Ross and Charles C. Cater. For 12 years, the bank played a vital role in the development of the black business district until its successor, Citizens Trust Bank. Alonzo F. Herndon, owner of several successful barber shops, purchased the Atlanta Benevolent Protective Association from Wheat Street Baptist Church in 1904, which gave birth to one of the most successful insurance companies, the Atlanta Mutual Insurance Association, later renamed the Atlanta Life Insurance Company. In 1908, Eamon Perry, a native Texan, migrated to Atlanta and began to organize a legal line insurance company. By 1913, Perry had collected $100,000 from investors and opened the Standard Life Insurance Company, which became one of the largest black insurance companies in the country. It was reported that the Perry Enterprises were worth over $11 million, and the financial success of the company made a tremendous impact on Auburn's growth and development. In 1912, Georgia's largest and wealthiest black fraternal organization, the Grand United Order of Oddfellows, constructed a six-story complex. The $250,000 structure, built by a black contractor, was dedicated by Booker T. Washington. One year later, a 1,300-seat auditorium was added to provide entertainment and accommodate large meetings. Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey were among the performers. In 1917, Auburn Avenue faced a severe setback when the Great Atlanta Fire destroyed numerous homes, businesses, and churches. By the 1920s, the Auburn Avenue community was the hub of black economic, social, and political activity in Atlanta. This excerpt from the Apex Museum's video, Sweet Auburn, Street of Pride, narrated by Cicely Tyson and Julian Bond, includes a short history of some of the major black-owned financial institutions that emerged during the early 20th century, some of which are still with us today. It's definitely not easy to read about the history of black-owned financial institutions, for not very much history has been written about them. Professor Alexa Benson Henderson at Clark Atlanta University wrote a book in 1990 called Atlanta Life Insurance Company, Guardian of Black Economic Dignity, where she described this whole in American history as follows, quote, I was discouraged by the dearth of sources, printed or otherwise, on many of the significant individuals, groups and organisations that have been associated with black business development in Atlanta and elsewhere. Sadly, many of these inspiring stories are lost forever. End quote. The Atlanta Life book opens a window to a whole branch of U.S. financial history that has been largely ignored. Black-owned financial institutions sprung up in many places following the end of slavery, initially taking the form of community and church-based mutual aid associations. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was no federal tax and no such thing as social security, unemployment insurance, Medicaid, and so forth. As always, those at the bottom of the economic ladder were the most vulnerable to the contingencies of sickness 
accident, job loss, death of a breadwinner or imprisonment of a breadwinner. And so out of this environment and out of necessity grew a slew of mutual aid associations in black communities. In such a mutual aid group, the cost of these risks is shared by everyone paying a small weekly or monthly premium. Out of this pool are paid the costs of the few that experience the covered contingencies such as death benefits to widows and orphans or weekly payments if you get sick and you can't work. In this way, the community as a whole bears these risks. This arrangement is more conducive to community development than having every member bear risk individually, which would tend to bankrupt whole segments of society. Out of this collection of mutual aid associations in the South, ultimately grew several extremely successful life insurance companies that, despite tremendous obstacles over the years, are still with us today, including the Atlanta Life Insurance Company on Auburn Avenue and North Carolina Mutual, born in another hub of black capital accumulation, Durham, North Carolina. These institutions have performed the near impossible, surviving for a whole century and through a period of brutal segregation, discrimination, the Great Depression, and through having to win the confidence of their own communities in black-owned and operated financial institutions. Around the time these insurance companies were starting to grow, another key segment of black finance was emerging, the black-owned banks. For example, Citizens Trust Bank opened up on Auburn Avenue in 1921 to meet the credit needs of the black community, to promote savings and the old-fashioned principles of thrift, and to promote home ownership. Through all that happened in the 20th century, Citizens Trust Bank is also still with us today. These and other black-owned institutions played a significant role in the accumulation and distribution of capital in African-American communities throughout the 20th century. It is no coincidence that the communities around them, such as the Auburn Avenue area, developed into economic hubs. Banks and insurance companies pool deposits and premiums and then invest them in things like home mortgages, office buildings and business loans. To the extent these pooled funds were invested back into local communities, further economic development of those communities was assured. Well, as the years went by and even as segregation continued, white financial institutions began to see that money could indeed be made of black customers and they began to compete fiercely for this business. Ronald H. Bayer's book called Race and the Shaping of 20th Century Atlanta sums up this situation as follows, quote, The success of these black institutions had proved to the white financial community that blacks were good mortgage, bank and insurance risks. The decisive factor has not been the white citizenry's quickened sense of charity or prosperity. As the men along Auburn Avenue often murmur wryly, dollars, you see, are not segregated. Often with deeper pockets, bigger marketing budgets, more experience and privileged access to the legislature, white financial institutions had many advantages in acquiring black customers, much to the detriment of the customer base of the black institutions. 
As the era of state-sanctioned segregation was coming to an end in the South in the 60s and 70s, a different form of segregation was already rampant in both the North and South. That is, financial segregation. The dominance of white institutions providing financial services to black customers soon led to a situation where accumulated capital from premiums and deposits were not being reinvested back into these communities, but rather flying away to ventures in other areas. In such a situation, capital is increasingly drained out of the local community. Happens to be symptomatic of a deeper malady in the American spirit. We must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers' profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our present policies. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be changed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. Social tensions in the aftermath of the assassination of the civil rights leader from Auburn Avenue, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., created the necessary pressure for the passage of the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which is also called the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Civil Rights Act. This act outlawed most housing discrimination and gave HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, responsibility for enforcement. On a related issue, this year also saw the birth of the government corporation known as Ginny May, the Government National Mortgage Association, who we met in Wizards of Money Part 15. Ginny was charged with a very important task, and that was to facilitate the flow of capital into home loans for low and moderate income neighbourhoods. Well, how did she do this, you might be asking? In 1934, during the New Deal regulatory blitz of the Great Depression, the National Housing Act came into effect. This act established the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, to ensure home mortgages. What this means is that the government provides a guarantee to mortgage lenders in low to moderate income neighbourhoods that they will get their money back if a borrower defaults. These government-guaranteed loans, known as FHA loans, encourage banks to make loans in many low- to moderate-income and minority neighbourhoods, and this loan program is administered by HUD. Let's hear some background on the FHA loan program from Charles Gardner, the director of HUD's Southeast Region Home Ownership Centre. Since the current statistics show so many FHA loans in foreclosure, We'll also hear about what happens when an FHA loan goes into default and the home is foreclosed on. Hey, my name is Charles Gardner, and I'm the director of the Atlanta Home Ownership Center, and I administer the FHA single-family programs for a 10-state area. 
is the main role of an FHA loan to provide insurance to the lender to, in, in order to encourage the lender to uh, devote more capital to to people that otherwise may not get loans. That's absolutely correct. Uh, FHA is mortgage insurance, and we protect the lender against loss, but it encourages the uh, flowing of capital into neighborhoods that might not otherwise be served. Uh, Also, because we insure the lender against loss, we can provide loans to families that would not qualify for a conventional mortgage. The thrust of FHA now is to promote uh, home ownership for first-time home buyers. If you look at the uh, portfolio of FHA loans, we provide uh, a significant number of loans in inner city areas, um, and we have historically had, in recent years, close to 50% of our loans going to minorities. Can you describe the mechanics of, of how an FHA loan works? Because is it true that... Um, Basically, the FHA loan is targeted to people that um, don't have money for a a sizable down payment of, say, 20% of the home value or so forth. But is is the down payment, there might be like a 3% down payment. Is that basic, is all of that going to pay insurance? um, No. How does that work? Uh, uh, The mortgage insurance premium is a relatively small part of the overall transaction. But you're absolutely correct. The real advantage of the FHA loan is that the down payment typically ranges in the 3% range as compared to 20% for a conventional loan. But we find when we look at the inability of of families, low to moderate income families, to purchase homes is that the biggest obstacle tends to be the down payment. So many people who work every day as teachers, firemen, uh, and other normal jobs have adequate income to make a monthly mortgage payment. What they don't have is the ability to come up with the 20% down payment plus additional closing costs. So by making uh, a loan available with a relatively modest down payment, uh, FHA has increased home ownership dramatically, and we see ourselves as a key player in the President's program to increase minority home ownership over the next few years. I wanted to ask you about the process of once a, an FHA loan goes into foreclosure, what what then happens? I went to last Tuesday was the first Tuesday of the month, so I went to the courthouse just to see. I wanted to try some of these FHA loans and see what what process was actually gone through to, to sell the house according to, to Georgia law. And what was interesting to me was I'd see, I'm assuming their lawyers standing there with their big sheets of, of, um, of mortgages, and literally, they would just um, stand there and and mumble like like sound like this, and you couldn't understand what they're saying. Sold to the lender for fifty thousand. That was the FHA loans continue. So going back, all just about all going back to the lender. What then happens to to that home? Okay, once the uh, property is foreclosed on, um, and the lender uh, has title to the property. Uh, they convey that property back to HUD. And once the property is conveyed, we would pay a claim to the lender, which is the basis of the insurance. Um, We have firms that uh, we employ, and their job is to actually market and resell that property. Uh, Many people uh, 
know that by the terminology of HUD homes, and we sell HUD homes in every state. As things turned out, in the early years of this program, the FHA insurance by itself still didn't encourage enough capital to float into home loans in these underserved neighbourhoods, and so Ginny May was created in 1968. As noted in Wizards Part 15, Ginny would buy up lots of government-insured mortgages, mostly from the FHA program, and then pull them together to create new securities known as mortgage-backed securities. Then she guaranteed timely payment of principal and interest to the investors in these new securities. These new pooled securities were very attractive to lots of investors with lots of capital to invest, such as insurance companies and pension funds. And so Ginny May began to facilitate the flow of more and more capital into the FHA loan program, serving low to middle income and minority communities. Her relatives known as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were created also as privately owned counterparts to facilitate the flow of capital into conventional loans requiring a 20% down payment and not insured through a government program. Ginny, Fannie and Freddie started something pretty revolutionary but unknowingly they had also created a monster. Before long, the investment bankers along Wall Street caught on to the art of doing what Fannie, Freddie and Ginny had done and they began pooling and making new securities out of anything and everything that had cash flows that moved. Securitization is the process of pooling together lots of individual debts like mortgages or credit card debt or auto loans and bundling them together to create new securities called asset-backed securities. These new securities backed by the cash flows generated from the pool, are more attractive to investors than investing directly in individual mortgages and credit card debt. The process of securitization has taken the financial world by storm and its rapid development is perhaps the most important development in finance in the past century. Coming into the 21st century, securitization has been responsible for exponential growth in the financing of things that otherwise may have only gotten dribbles of capital, from non-stop credit card offers to predatory mortgages and home equity loans to FHA loans and the list goes on and on. To understand how securitization has facilitated predatory lending, we must travel along the securitization pipeline and trace a home loan from the unsuspecting home buyer through the mortgage broker all the way back to Wall Street, the banking giants, the secret hedge funds, the insurance companies and other investment vehicles. We'll start our journey with a borrower in a low to middle income community. There are two types of customers there. Those that already have a mortgage and some equity in their homes and first time home buyers. First we'll hear about the first type of borrower, the most likely target of the predatory lending pipeline from Bill Brennan, the director of Atlanta Legal Aid's Home Defense Program. Uh, my name is William Brennan and I'm the director of the Home Defense Program of the which is a unit of the Atlanta Legal Aid Society in Atlanta, Georgia. 
and my unit specializes in assisting home buyers and homeowners who have been defrauded in uh, home buyer scams and and predatory mortgage lending scams. And how long has has this uh, department been doing the work that it's been doing? About twelve years. Okay. Has has predatory lending? What are the trends that you've seen in predatory lending over that period? Uh, it definitely cranked up in a very big way in the late 80s and early 90s and has gotten more expansive since then. Uh, finance companies got into finance companies, which formerly were doing only small loans, signature type loans, got into the subprime, what is called the subprime mortgage lending business, beginning in the late 80s and early 90s, which caused a a huge expansion of that type of business to follow. How much did the development of the secu- of securitization and the way that financial companies have been able to spread risk through securitization, the entrance of like the hedge funds to take some of the more riskier pieces of securitizations, how much did the the deregulation and the evolution of the financial markets have to do with with the growth of, of subprime lending. A huge amount. I mean, there's no doubt, but that the, the securitization process has fueled the expansion and, and uh, the aggressive marketing of subprime lending in America. You know, I I can remember second mortgage loans, high cost second mortgage loans being made in the '60s and '70s when I first started working at Atlanta Legal Aid and. Those loans were always held in portfolio, and the lender hung on to them for 15 or 20 years. But in the mid to late 80s, when uh, the subprime mortgage lending industry realized that they could imitate what Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae had done with securitization, uh, that prompted a huge expansion. Of it. Because the, it's clear that, that there's, a, there's an increase of profitability going on, and as you say, there's a, a spreading out of the risk which is very important to them. So they found what they, instead of selling mortgages to other companies, which to some extent was going on in the past, what they call the secondary mortgage market, that market has now been taken over by securitization. In fact, securitization is now called the new secondary mortgage market. And can you describe, you know, the majority of people that come to see you, what sort of situation are they in by the time they come to see you? Um, Most of the people that come to see us are longtime homeowners who are facing foreclosure because they're in default on a high-cost, abusive mortgage loan, what we call a predatory mortgage loan, Um, and they're in dire straits. Uh, We sometimes get people who are not in default, but that's rare. So we're usually looking at a situation where someone is two or three months behind in, in Georgia, where we are, they're facing a very fast-track foreclosure system, so there isn't much time to do something to help them, but we do the best we can. The rate of foreclosure now in the Atlanta area is extraordinarily high. I don't, it may be the highest it's ever been. If you look at the data and you look at the zip codes where those foreclosures are the highest, we're talking about a lot of Atlanta zip codes where there's a, a large majority African-American population. Do you think a lot of that is the result of predatory lending, that the high rate of foreclosure? Yes. Again, uh, really without any question, we've been looking at this issue for years. Uh, the Some of the features of, of subprime mortgage lending, which is, in our view, predatory mortgage lending, 
definitely involve lending to people without concern for their ability to pay. That's going to result in a foreclosure sooner or later. But why does the lender, why would a lender not worry about the ability to pay? Wouldn't they lose money if the lender can't? Not at all. Um, Most of these loans, almost all the loans I've seen, with a few exceptions, are loans for amounts that are less than the, substantially less than the value of the house. They usually lend 70 or 80 percent what they call loan to value. So that uh, if there's ultimately a default in a foreclosure after the loan goes into securitization, um, the loan is pulled out of securitization and foreclosed on, and the sale produces certainly enough money to pay off the loan and usually an additional profit for whoever the holder of the mortgage is. So there's no real loss to be anticipated with the system they have in place. Now, the only one who loses is the homeowner. Uh, Another feature, though, to these loans is that they absolutely target minorities, especially in large metropolitan areas. Study after study has been done in this country, which which shows that this is the case. Uh, 98% of the clients that come into my program are African-American in Atlanta. Um, So when I hear that there's a large foreclosure rate in an inner-city African-American neighborhood as, as you just described i'm not surprised at all because uh, you know the large reason i mean a very important reason for that high foreclosure rate is the abusive lending practices that these companies engage in which often result in foreclosures not not all of them however there are other reasons why there there's a high foreclosure well, rate is that trend of predatory lending also affecting middle income minority Great. Yes, like any other uh, company seeking to expand its market, these these subprime mortgage lenders, originally we were so much seeing uh, elderly people, retired people, even disabled homeowners getting these loans, widows. Uh, but now, over the past five, seven, eight years, we've seen a definite increase in the expansion of these loans into middle-class uh, homeowner-occupied neighborhoods. Um, of African Americans or other minorities, sure, they they seek to expand and they market very aggressively. Whereas low-cost mortgage lenders do not, banks do not. These companies, if you turn on any radio, African American radio station in Atlanta, you will hear these ads around the clock. Uh, they they solicit through telephones, radio ads, door-to-door flyers and mailboxes. They're very aggressive and. They do target African-American neighborhoods. The types of subprime loans we're talking about here should not be confused with FHA loans, which are very different and which we will talk about separately later. The home loan process starts with the broker or agent of a mortgage originator, that is, the original lender. Many of these brokers and originators are small operations with unfamiliar names, or they are seedy subsidiaries of the big banks. In cases of fraudulent sales, such as falsified loan applications and the like, it's these players who are often directly responsible for the fraudulent act. What many of these predatory loans have in common is that the borrower finds an offer of credit quite attractive, but does not understand the mathematics behind the transaction. They mistakenly trust the broker and or the original lender to do the calculations for them and don't realise they are paying too much for credit. 
when they can't afford their payments a few years down the track, they will lose their home. These loan originators are generally not well capitalised nor regulated, which is why so much fraud happens at this point. Their primary sources of capital are the mortgage subsidiaries of the big banks that buy the mortgages from these small operators in bulk. The mortgage subsidiaries of the big banks such as Chase Manhattan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Deutsche Bank and Washington Mutual buy up these mortgages in bulk and bundle them together to create pools out of them in things called securitization vehicles or special purpose vehicles or SPVs. The cash flows from the SPVs or pools are then used to make new financial instruments called asset-backed securities. These asset-backed securities issued against a single pool of home loans come in several varieties known as tranches. The securities known as the senior tranches are the first to get paid out of the home loan payments coming out of the pool. Then there are the most junior tranches that get paid off last. Hence the senior tranches are very safe investments and it's really the junior tranches that bear the risk of default by borrowers and possible losses realised on foreclosure. Because the senior tranches are safer investments they are very attractive to insurance companies and the like. Because the junior or so-called toxic tranches are very risky and bear most of the risks of default in the pool, they must offer a very high return to attract investors. This is exactly what the investment vehicles known as the hedge funds love to see, high returns. Hedge funds are unregulated managed investment vehicles funded by the capital of the extremely wealthy and they are designed to earn super returns for them. They are not regulated because of the so-called sophistication and wealth of their investors. The role of hedge funds and other investors who take up the risky tranches of securitizations is absolutely critical. Without them, securitizations would not be as prevalent as they are today because in order for the banks to reduce their own risks in this process and to front their profits on mortgage lending, they have to be able to sell these risky tranches. The fact that both hedge funds and others in this pipeline are not regulated means that safety and soundness of mortgage financing overall is reduced and that the profitability of it is increased. This system design and its extraordinary profitability have facilitated massive flows of capital into subprime and predatory lending in the past decade. Here's Bill Brennan again. Dual system of financial apartheid. They do good lending to their preferred customers on mortgages and other loans, and they do abusive predatory lending to low and moderate income people using risk as an excuse to exploit. And it's very profitable. And I believe they funnel the huge profits from the subprime end of the business into providing the lowest priced uh, banking services to their most favored customers. In the recent set of national and local foreclosure statistics, it is clear that foreclosures related to subprime loans are on the rise. 
and so are those related to FHA loans. Let's now turn our attention to what's going on in the FHA loan market. In the statistics I have for Atlanta, FHA loans in foreclosure account for about one-third of all recent foreclosures. Interestingly, I also note that almost 20% of these were FHA loans that were bought by subsidiaries of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Not only is Chase Manhattan one of the largest issuers of the Ginny May securities made from FHA loans, but J.P. Morgan Chase has been employed by the government for years as the main pooling and banking agent for the whole Ginny May program. This reminded me of an article I read recently in the Wall Street Journal about a home loan scam in Pennsylvania where homes were being overvalued by fraudulent appraisers and ultimately facing foreclosure because people couldn't afford their loans. The supplier of capital here was Chase Manhattan Mortgage, who claimed no knowledge of what was going on. Over-appraising the value of homes lies at the heart of many FHA loan program abuses. You see, in this case, the FHA insurance program guarantees that the lender will get their money back if they lose money on foreclosure. So over-appraising and over-lending that leads to foreclosure can be very profitable indeed. I decided to ask HUD about what was going on with the higher rates of FHA loan foreclosures in Atlanta. Here's Charles Gardner. Well, I think when you look at our overall loan portfolio, one we talked a little bit earlier about FHA program makes housing opportunities to families who might not otherwise qualify. So we certainly do take more risk than a typical conventional lender. Uh, and because of that, our purchases are clearly susceptible to changes in, in local economic situations. It's no secret to anybody that lives in the Atlanta MSA that uh, times are certainly a little bit tougher than they were a few years back. So when you look at the fact that unemployment is up, clearly the economy is not doing quite as well as it had before, uh, borrowers who um, really had a more difficult time purchasing a home in the first place uh, would clearly uh, be the most likely to have a default. So again, we service borrowers who have a, a somewhat more risk than the conventional borrower, so it's not unexpected that we would have a slightly higher default rate than the conventional borrower would. Bill Brennan at Atlanta Legal Aid had a lot more to say about what was going on. First of all, the first problem that has been identified with this FHA program, a program, by the way, whose purpose and intent is, is, is laudable. I mean, it's a, it's a program to increase home ownership to home buyers who have slightly less than perfect credit and who ought to be able to buy a home, have sufficient income to buy a home. Uh, the, so that nonetheless, a program with good intentions is often exploited and abused. And so in the FHA world, what we see is mortgage lenders who target often, again, African-American homebuyers. It's a, basically a homebuyer program. Uh, and, and make FHA loans to African-American homebuyers who, who are eligible for, for the lowest cost mortgage loans. So um, again, the FHA program is designed to help people with slightly less than perfect credit and to steer a homebuyer, particularly an African-American homebuyer, into a 
FHA loan when they're eligible for the much lower cost loan is wrong. And that goes on all the time. We see that all the time. The second problem we're seeing is that uh, many uh, mortgage lenders are, are putting people into FHA loans who really don't qualify. And that's a major problem. Uh, there's the, no one makes any money unless a mortgage loan closing takes place. So that you're seeing this abuse going on of, and I see it all the time, of people buying homes through the FHA program who ordinarily, if you just look at their economic situation, you would say this person isn't eligible to be a home buyer. They don't have enough income and, and credit worthiness. Yet there they are with an FHA loan that ends up going into foreclosure in a matter of months, oftentimes. And finally, there's another uh, more blatant situation going on where uh, criminals are abusing the FHA program by acquiring homes and usually in large inner city neighborhoods for a very small amount of money, doing cosmetic repairs, and then lining up an unqualified home buyer with a falsified loan application, which falsifies their income to buy the house through, through an FHA loan. Uh, using a falsified appraisal, and often uh, these criminals are using um, confederates inside the mortgage company to approve the loan that never should be made. The idea, of course, being that the the, the buyer is, is going to buy the house, uh, the, the seller, the crook, is going to get a huge amount of money with the overappraised house being sold, uh, and the uh, the buyer eventually, of course, is going to default and go into foreclosure, and HUD's going to end up owning the house and paying off the subsequent holder of the mortgage. The buyer goes into foreclosure because the home is basically overvalued relative to their income. Yes, and the payments are set at a the monthly payments are set at an amount that the borrower can't pay. I mean, we have we have actually seen dozens of those cases here, um, where you'll see someone making eight thousand dollars a year buying a ninety thousand dollar house under the FHA program. This issue of, of improper FHA lending is has been well documented. The U.S. attorneys have indicted people around the country, particularly in Baltimore and I believe in uh, Florida and California. Particularly in Baltimore, there were hundreds of home buyers who unqualified home buyers who were processed through certain home sellers who were identified and criminally prosecuted by the United States Attorney and the FBI. So that it's and we see it. I mean, I've. I just put in a call to a HUD official in Birmingham about a case that I'm looking at right now where three home buyers with little or no income bought F homes with FHA mortgages. And HUD has been investigating this uh, mortgage broker who arranged these transactions. So it's definitely going on. And it's a shame because the FHA program is a wonderful program. It's a good program. It's largely successful, in my opinion, around the country. And just like any other program that is designed to help lower income people, people with less than perfect credit, to become homeowners, to join the mainstream of the economy, um, it, it's being abused by certain actors. In, in then I asked HUD about why Chase Manhattan was such a popular name with the FHA loans in foreclosure. What's interesting coming out of the Atlanta data is that Chase Manhattan mortgage is by far and away the largest presence in this foreclosure data related to FHA loans and not as the originator but as the purchaser. the purchaser. I was kind of curious to know what, what was going on there. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, nothing specific as it relates to, to Chase. I, I mean, I'd have to take a look at your data um, and see what we could find out. I can tell you that we have a very aggressive posture at reviewing lenders. So we take a close look at 
loans that are originated by lenders as, as well as loans that are purchased to make sure that the proper due diligence is performed. And where we find that is not the case, we have a lender indemnify us against loss. Again, Bill Brennan had a lot more to say on this issue. There, there was a, a, a big article in the Wall Street Journal about the um, inflating the cost of the house. The ultimate lender in the case that they gave there was, was, was Chase Manhattan Mortgage. And again, when you look at the Atlanta data, the, the overwhelming owner of the deeds of the FHA loans in foreclosure is, is Chase Manhattan. The point I'm getting at is that these big banks, the, the huge banks that basically sit at the core of the financial system, are not innocent in, in this because even though they may not be directly involved, they must be doing their due diligence to make sure that these types of practices aren't, aren't happening. And I don't know if you have any comments on that, on their sort of um, complicity in, in a lot of these types of things. Yeah, I, I must say, I mean, I've been looking at all types of mortgage lending steadily now for, you know, 12, 13 years. And, and I don't buy it for one second, this analysis that banks are buying mortgages in the stream, in the income, in the economy stream of mortgage lending without knowing what's going on. That's just plainly ridiculous. Of course they know what's going on. They, they, in fact, I always argue that there's a wonderful uh, model in place that any mortgage lender who purchases mortgage could follow, and that's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's all they do. They buy billions of dollars of mortgages every year under the most strict supervised circumstances. If a, if a lender originator of a mortgage wants to sell its mortgage to Fannie Mae, they must comply with Fannie Mae's strict, very strict guidelines to begin channeling mortgages into Fannie Mae and getting paid for them. If they violate Fannie Mae's strict requirements, they're kicked out of the system. Uh, HUD could do apply the same principles uh, uh, to this situation. If, if Chase is buying mortgages that are originated or by systems that uh, uh, you know, result in high rates of foreclosure, then, then um, when Chase forecloses and approaches HUD for the payoff under the insurance program of the mortgage, HUD should turn them down. In the predatory lending market, I think Chase, Citigroup and so forth, the, the, the large banks are also big players, is that correct? Absolutely, and, and we have seen case after case of subprime mortgage loans with Chase with abusive lending practices. Chase purchased uh, Advanta a unit of Advanta Mortgage Company some years ago, and we previously had many cases with Advanta, abusive, high-cost, uh, predatory, I would even say, lending cases. And it's just outrageous that Chase has gotten into this uh, in a very big way. And they haven't reformed the abusive practices, I might add. The, the abusive practices that we saw with Advanta certainly continue apace with Chase. Citigroup, same story. Uh, so, you know, it's just outrageous that major banks have become players in the in the subprime predatory mortgage lending world. That's been a very distressing issue. I had an opportunity to testify about it before the Senate Committee on Aging and the House Banking Committee on two different occasions and you know took the opportunity to criticize these major banks that are that are funneling huge amounts of capital into predatory lending that are costing elderly and long-term minority and long-term homeowners, their homes. Well, on the bright side, 
In the fight to stamp out both predatory lending and FHA loan abuses, some progress is being made. On the HUD side of things, Charles Gardner told me about the HUD Loss Mitigation Program on FHA loans. We also, um, which is a feature of FHA that uh, conventional loans don't have, is that we mandate and require that lenders uh, offer borrowers that have problems loss mitigation. So we have a variety of tools ranging from a, a loan modification to special forbearance that lenders are required to offer borrowers who are in default. So we really try to work with people to help them stay in their houses. Also, the day I visited HUD, they released a new rule about holding lenders accountable for the work of appraisers, which should help reduce overvaluations and the FHA abuse known as asset flipping. Bill Brennan also told me about some of the good lenders in this system. In some of the articles that have documented your work, I've seen reference to you referring some lenders to banks like Citizens Trust Bank. Is that correct? Um, yes. Um, you know, we're, we're always looking for banks that will make, that will do loans uh, for people with less than perfect credit at, at reasonable rates. And, and a few of them, very few, do exist around the country. Uh, with Citizens Trust Bank here in Atlanta, we're actually referring people to them for a, a special Fannie Mae refinance program. Fannie Mae has a program uh, working in partnership with local community banks like Citizens Trust Bank uh, to uh, refinance people out from under high-cost predatory loans, people who are able to pay and eligible. But I think that's the solution, by the way, to predatory lending is when the mainstream lenders step in and start making loans on reasonable terms. Uh, that are non-abusive, that that would put the predatory lenders out of business for pretty quickly because there'd be competition. People would find out about it. And why, why go to a, a lender who's going to charge 16% interest when you can get a loan from a bank that charges perhaps 8.5% interest but no abusive features in the loan? Um, I, I shouldn't let this question go without also mentioning a, a major program in the country called the Na Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America, which works in partnership with Bank of America uh, in 26 cities, I believe, including Atlanta, making homebuyer loans to people with less than perfect credit uh, and refinancing predatory loans on a, on a lesser basis. But they've done many, many, they've refinanced many of our clients out from under predatory loans. They do market rate loans at the moment, five and a half percent, no closing costs on home purchases, no down payment, and they basically try to identify home buyers who can really afford the loan and who can have the ability to pay. Finally, we also discussed the new Georgia predatory lending law, the toughest in the country and revolutionary in that it creates legal liability all the way up the predatory lending pipeline to the big financial players and capital suppliers. Here's Bill Brennan discussing the law that he's worked on with others for many years. The law targets abusive practices which are profitable. And the industry, of course, doesn't like to see profits reduced. <laughs> as simple as that. Um, the, 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 law is, 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 the law is designed to address abuses that occur in high-cost lending and in sort of middle-level lending 
And uh, the higher the cost loan, the more restrictive are the provisions of the law. And the companies uh, argue that if they do high-cost lending, they can't sell their loans into securitization very easily, which gets back to the subject we were talking about earlier. Uh, well, they certainly can, as long as they don't violate the law. The originators, if they if they refrain from violating the provisions, the prohibitions that are contained in the high-cost lending area, they could easily sell their loans in the secondary market. Um, but they, they, of course, in my view, they, they want to do the abusive practices because they're so profitable, and they want to sell the loans into the secondary market. Therefore, they're upset with this new law and are most anxious to dismantle it. So this this new law has created legal liability all the way up the pipeline, including to the secondary purchases. For some provisions, yes. Not not for the entire law, but yes, for some of the provisions, particularly in the high-cost lending area, the uh, violations of the law, uh, the, the penalties adhere to subsequent purchasers. Yes, and that's the way it should be. I mean, frankly, the law wouldn't do our borrowers, our homeowners, much good. If uh, and and you know, ninety nine percent of all subprime mortgages are sold in, into securitization or transferred into the securitization. So they're prices. going into the major capital markets and being dealt with somewhere along the pipeline by the major financial institutions. Yes, and while the bill was being debated, the subprime lenders very much opposed any idea of transferee or what's what's called transferee or assignee liability. Uh, they said they would have trouble selling the mortgages in the, into securitization and uh, um, therefore opposed the idea of, of having penalties apply to subsequent holders of the mortgage. Uh, our response was um, then if, if, if they prevailed on that issue, the law would have no teeth because the loans are sold the day they're made. I mean, they're transferred the day they're made. So what good is it to say that... Uh, that there's a heavy penalty for some terrible abusive practice, uh, but that it doesn't apply to a subsequent holder. Uh, they would all just say, fine. And then the, ori the originators, by and large, are, are often local fly-by-nights. Small, small operators right. that are out of business. If you sue them, you can't collect from them. And, and again, another issue here is that so many of our, our homeowners coming to us are in foreclosure, by, and the foreclosure is being handled by the subsequent holder of the mortgage. So we, we would need the law to assert the provisions against the holder who's foreclosing. Legislators at the congressional level and at the state level and at the municipal and county level all should unite in enacting legislation to stop predatory lending. What a blight on the country it is. What an awful thing it is to allow to go forward. I, and I, I know I'm preaching, but I wish you could see. There was two elderly African-American women who were sitting in this office this morning next to me in tears, losing their home. Those people would never have been been uh, targeted uh, for for the marketing efforts of this kind of lending 25 years ago. That wasn't going on. I mean, they most of those folks bought their homes with FHA loans and paid them off, and lived in homes with paid-off mortgages and, and retired into uh, you know a happy retirement with a paid-for house. We don't see that anymore. You know, that's that's gone by the wayside. We see elderly people coming in owing. Sixty, ninety thousand dollars and they're living on social security income. It's just ridiculous. That's all for the Wizards of Money Part 18. Wizards of Money has a website with references, text and background materials at wizardsofmoney.org and you can also email me at smithy at mindspring.com.